Before we get into another episode of the Jude 3 Project podcast, we want to say thank you to all our listeners. We appreciate your prayers, support, and encouragement. We also want to send a special thanks to our monthly financial partners. We could not do what we do without you. We have been able to equip college students at historically black colleges and universities and facilitate seminars for pastors and leaders because of your financial support. If the Jude 3 Project has been a blessing to you, please consider becoming a monthly partner. No gift is too small or large, whether you give one time or monthly. We appreciate it. You can give online at jude3project.com by hitting the donate button or by mail by sending your gift to jude3project at P.O. Box 26206, Jacksonville, Florida, 32226. Thanks again. Now let's join the Jude 3 Project podcast. Enjoy. Hello, welcome to the Jude 3 Project podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Fields. I'm the founder of the Jude 3 Project. Well, thank you for watching another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. As always, I'm your host, Lisa Fields, the founder of the Jew 3 Project. And today I'm joined by a very special guest, the Jamar Tisby. Welcome, Jamar. I've been waiting for this. I've been so eager <laughs> to communicate with you on the Jew 3 Project. I I might need to get a t-shirt made or something. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Uh, well, for those who don't know who you are, give us, uh, give them just a little bit of background about yourself. Yeah. Um, in terms of my professional roles, I am the president of The Witness, a, Bra a Black Christian collective. That's thewitnessbcc.com if folks want to check out the website. I'm also the co-host of the podcast, Pass the Mic dynamic voices for a diverse church, where we talk about issues of race and culture and religion, all from a Black Christian perspective. So that keeps me busy. But in addition to that, I'm also a PhD student in history at the University of Mississippi. Um, I am not from the Deep South. I've, I'm from the Chicago area, but my friend who was born and raised in Mississippi called Chicago North Mississippi. So I felt a connection here anyway. Um, so I'm, I'm studying history as well as have a family and a bunch of other different things in terms of speaking and preaching and writing. That's awesome. I'll be in Chicago tomorrow for uh, the first time since middle school. So oh no way! Food. I heard Absolutely. I heard it's good food there. Remember <laughs> to bring your coat, Florida. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's it was 80 here the other day, and it's like 20 something there. So it's a Huge, yeah. huge weather difference. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to be talking about something that I know that you're very passionate, someone who I know you're very passionate about, Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, why did you, what made you start researching her life? You know, the wild thing about history in general and U.S. history and civil rights history is how much we really don't know. And so I think I had maybe heard the name Fannie Lou Hamer, but I had no idea her significance or what she had done until well into my adulthood, really until I moved down south. 
And so I've been learning about lots of different people, events, organizations, institutions, but she was one, Fannie Lou Hamer stuck out because although the civil rights movement is really known as a church-based movement, uh, Miss Fannie Lou Hamer was out there with her faith. I mean, she let her light shine. And one of her favorite songs was This Little Light of Mine. And it's so appropriate because no matter where she went, no matter who she interacted with, she would let her light shine in terms of her Christian faith. And beyond that, just, just being sort of a holy person, that faith led her into activism. So that, I think, is what truly intrigues me is how people of faith, particularly Black Christians, think about and interpret their faith in a way that leads them to social action. So um, all facets of her life. And she was just, I think, you know, a lot of people ask, who would you, you know, who are figures from history you could meet if you could meet anyone? And I think Fannie Lou Hamer is one of those people for me. That's awesome. That's awesome. And on this Women's History Month, I think it's mm -hmm. so important that we highlight voices like hers. Um, who is, if someone was to ask you, who is Fannie Lou Hamer? What would be uh, your opening your opening statements? If you could just pick, you know, single words or statements, phrases to describe Fannie Lou Hamer, she's a Christian. Uh, she's a black woman, which was in integral to the way she practiced her faith and activism. Uh, she's a Mississippian. She is a civil rights activist, and she is an organic theologian, as some people would say, uh, although she only had a sixth grade education, uh, the sophistication of her theology is really impressive. And so she used all that to very improbably become a prominent civil rights activist uh, in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. Tell us about her early life. Is much known about her early life? Yes, yes. So I want to set up Fannie Lou Hamer's biography by talking about so, sort of American history in general, in particular, uh, the context of Jim Crow and sharecropping and lynching, because we have to understand that if we know, if we're going to understand how radical Fannie Lou Hamer's actions were in her context. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of people remember the Civil War as ending slavery. But uh, one author says that after the Civil War, there was put in place a system of labor that was simply slavery by another name. And so what you get is that um, beginning in the 1830s, you had a, a white actor named Thomas D. Rice who took to the stage as, as a minstrel character named Jim Crow. And he would be, it was a white person in blackface and he was this trickster um, and he sort of forever popularized this figure of Jim Crow. And that's where we get the name. It was from a, a minstrel soul called Jump Jim Crow. Now, after the Civil War, what happened was plantation owners still had these big old plantations and they still need, needed workers for them. But they were actually devastated by the Civil War financially. So slave owners didn't have as much money as they used to have, but they still needed a lot of labor, very cheap. Um, so then what do they do? It's not like they just give up farming or move somewhere else. What they did was devise another way to get cheap or free labor. And that was the system that became known as sharecropping. Now, the way sharecropping theoretically worked was this, that a plantation owner had his land and he would divide it up into sections. Sharecroppers would farm those sections 
and then they would give a share of the crop to the landowner and then be able to keep some for themselves, theoretically feeding their own families, as well as if it was a good harvest, having some left over to sell and make a profit and eventually perhaps get their way by their own land and, and, and find some economic stability. But in reality, the way sharecropping really worked was if you were a slave, you didn't have nothing. I mean, you, you had no money and you certainly didn't have any farm materials. And so what would happen is they had these things on the plantation called commissaries where all of the black former slaves would have to go and get their materials. So they had to get their plows, their wagons, their livestock, the seed, all of that. And they'd have to get it on credit because they didn't have any money. So they would do all that. They would tend the crops, they would harvest the crops. And then at the end of the season, they would bring what they had back to the, the plantation owner. And they were supposed to be able to use those crops to pay off their credit and then still have some left and move on. Well, what always happened was uh, they either broke even because the plantation owner could determine how much money, how much credit uh, everything cost. And then the crop came back in and he could just arbitrarily say, okay, you're covered. You're at zero again. Or what would often happen is um, they would bring the crop and say, you know what, this is not enough to cover your credit. So actually you're in debt. And since you still don't have money, you're going to have to get more seed, more implements, more farming tools from me. And so they would go further and further into debt. So it was a generational thing. And to keep control, they couldn't, own people legally anymore, but they still devised ways to control people. And that was through systematic terrorism uh, during the Jim Crow era. One of the main ways was lynching for black men, but there was the equal and opposite uh, um, terrorism for black women was rape, along with just sort of everyday abuses. And so this is the context where Fannie Lou Hamer is born into. And so she's born a very poor sharecropper in the Mississippi Delta, which to this day is the poorest area of one of the poorest states in America. And so her rise to national prominence is very improbable. I'll pause there. There's some things I, I can say about her childhood, but I know I've been talking a long time. No, you can, take the, you can continue. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's just like, we got to imagine this world um, where your whole life is poverty. So Fannie Lou Hamer would talk about in the winter in Mississippi, it didn't snow, but the ground would get very, very cold. And so her mother would have to wrap their feet up in rags so that they could go walking outside. Not only that, Fannie Lou Hamer was the youngest, the last of 20 children that her mother had. And so you can imagine that that type of crushing poverty. Oftentimes they only had like onions to eat for dinner, um, maybe a piece of bread. And so it's, it's, it's this horrible uh, environment. And if I could describe, like we say lynching, but we don't, I mean, other than maybe pictures that maybe come to mind, we don't really think about this. And so um, Ta-Nehisi Coates in his book, Between the World and Me, has this great paragraph where he describes the fact that racism and the terror that it creates always ends up physically violent. And so if I could just read a couple sentences from that. Yeah, go ahead. Coates said, it's hard to face this, but all our phrasing, race relations, racial chasm, racial justice, racial profiling, white privilege, even white supremacy, 
serves to obscure that racism is a visceral experience, that it dislodges brains, blocks airways, rips muscle, extracts organs, cracks bones, breaks teeth. You must never look away from this. You must always remember that the sociology, the history, the economics, the graphs, the charts, the regressions all land with great violence upon the body. And then there's one story of a lynching that just stands out to me because of its brutality. They were all very brutal, but this one in particular stood out to me. It's the lynching of Luther and Mary Holbert. It's a very interesting backstory that I'll spare you the details, but essentially they were on the run uh, because Luther Holbert in sort of a suspicious situation, we don't know all the details, but it sounded like self-defense had killed a white man, a very prominent one. And they were after him and his wife, Mary Holbert. And so they were on the run and they caught up to them. And here's what they did. Uh, they had a public lynching and it said more than a thousand people showed up to gawk at the lynching of Luthi, Lucy, Luther and Mary Holbert. The lyncher, lyncher, I'm sorry, the lynchers tied up the Holberts and commenced with, quote, the most fiendish tortures. First, the white murderers cut off each of the fingers and toes of their victims and gave them out as souvenirs. Wow. They, they beat them so mercilessly that one of Luther Holbert's eyes hung only by a shred from its socket. Then came the most fiendish abuse. The Vicksburg Evening Post reported the most excruciating form of punishment consisted in the use of a large corkscrew in the hands of some of the mob. The instrument was bored into the flesh of the man and woman in the arms, legs, and body, and then pulled out the spirals tearing out big pieces of raw, quivering flesh every time it was withdrawn. Finally, the Holberts, who were still alive, were taken to a pyre. The white men cruelly forced two black men under the threat of death to drag the Holberts to the fires. They burned Mary first so Luther could see his beloved killed. Then they burned him. Wow. And, you know, I, I, I read that in presentations across the country and I struggle every time because we don't want to make a spectacle of black death, uh, which happens so often throughout history and, and now in the age of, you know, cell phone video cameras and social media. We don't want to just make this something to gawk at. But at the same time, uh, what I fear is that as we talk about history, particularly the violent ways that racism gets enacted, we just think about it abstractly. Uh, we don't actually ponder the physical, visceral, as Coates said, effects of racism. And until it becomes real to us in words or through pictures, I don't think we will understand the gravity of racism, not only then, but now, because <laughs> we're living in that legacy. So all of that <laughs> is to frame uh, the environment of Fannie Lou Hamer. And what it does is communicates how exceptional she was to resist because she knew that resistance very really meant, could mean death. So that's one of the things I admire about her is her great courage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And as you, you talked about, you know, 
having her and growing up in extreme poverty, um, what was what was her teenage years like? Um, yeah. So she, um, her teenage years were very much like her childhood years. When she was maybe six years old, uh, the plantation owner essentially bribed her with candy and said, you know, can you pick 30 pounds of cotton? If you do this week, I'll give you all these things that, that kids like, all these treats. And basically, she had she never stopped picking cotton after that. Uh, so she started at six years old. And then by the time she was a grown woman, she was picking as much or more as the men were in terms of, of cotton. She talked about uh, scrapping cotton, which is very interesting because I think it has kind of an Old Testament parallel uh, to gleaning. So in, in the Old Testament, um, Jewish or is, is uh, people of Israel who owned farms were advised not to harvest the crop all the way to the edge of the fields, but to leave the edges for the poor to come and, and pick the crops. In somewhat of a similar way, but not altruistically, what would happen was very poor black sharecroppers, after they had harvested the crop for the landowner, they would go get permission on various um, plantations to pick the scraps up, whether off the ground or um, the cotton bowls themselves. And what they would do, they called this scrapping cotton, and they would scrape together enough cotton to form their own bale and perhaps sell that. So that was some of the stuff that she had to do. When she got older, she married uh, Perry Hamer, whose nickname was Pap, and he was another sharecropper. So they didn't they didn't, they didn't marry into money. They didn't, nobody they knew had money, so they was just poor all the way through, and um, Mississippi Delta poor as well. So that's another kind of deal. She went through some horrendous experiences. One of the things that stuck out to me about Fannie Lou Hamer's story is kind of the gendered violence that she underwent. Um, so there's her uh, beating in a jail in Mississippi, which I'll talk about later. But even before that, there was something that 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 really only gets a footnote in most accountings if it's mentioned at all but i just found it utterly grotesque she went in for a minor surgical procedure to remove some cysts um on her ovaries and that's all that was supposed to happen well when she woke up she no longer had a uterus the doctor the white doctor had performed an unauthorized hysterectomy on Fannie Lou Hamer and um, removed her womb wow. without her knowledge. And so you can imagine this woman who's the youngest of 20 now can't have children of her own. And uh, she had always wanted children. So she never really got over that. She never understood it. But it was just one of the many injustices, unfortunately, that she experienced as a poor Black woman living in this era. Mm -hmm. How did she become such a strong be believer? Um, because in this context, uh, there's white Christians doing um, absolutely horrendous, violent things to to black people in that time. It would seem to suggest that she would reject everything about the Christian faith because um, those who were the oppressors were Christians. Right, right, right. That's always been the great mystery of black faith, hasn't it? Like, how, how do you uh, appropriate Christianity when so many abuses uh, have been perpetuated on black people by white Christians? And so, you know, an interesting bit of history, I think, is the fact that 
prior to about the 1730s and 40s, you didn't have a lot of black Christian converts for that very reason. Um, you know, uh, the first black slaves, they were kind of indentured servants. Nobody really knew what to do with them. That was 1619. And so for the next 100, 120 years, you know, uh, folks, Europeans were trying to evangelize um, black slaves as well as Native Americans without much success for obvious reasons, because they're enslavers, they're colonists, they're imperialists and conquerors. And so nobody was buying it. But what started to happen was that uh, you started to have a natural increase, meaning um, people who came directly from Africa were starting to have children in America. So they were native born Africans um, without the same connection to African tribal religions. They still had some from their parents, but you know, the more generations that were born in America, the, the looser those ties, except in places like Charleston and um, New Orleans and, and places that still had a very strong connection to Africa or were relatively isolated. Not until the first great awakening, though, did uh, black Christians start to convert in large numbers. And part of that was because the format. The format of these meetings were, were camp meetings. They were big evangelistic crusades, literally tens of thousands of people. Tens of thousands of people would come to hear folks like George Whitfield preach. And they were oftentimes interracial. And so they would let black folks listen in. And that's when black people started converting in larger numbers. And then um, what happens, though, early on is black people see through the sin of racism and slavery and they encounter the living God. Uh, they realize that embedded in the biblical story, especially stories about like Exodus and just this general motif of liberation, they knew that was real and it gave them a hope. It gave them something that they could hold on to. And they saw that in spite of the slaveholding religion of the white people in charge. They saw that in spite of the abuses of Christianity. And so, you know, why? It's a God thing, ultimately, that he enabled them, I think, to see the truth of what they were hearing in spite of its abuses. Mm -hmm. And so that's, um, in turn, what happened in Fannie, Fannie Lou's um, case. Yeah, by the time you get to the 1900s, I mean, uh, Everybody, almost everybody in the South is a black Baptist. I mean, that's just the way it worked. Um, Baptist took off, um, or Methodist, but Baptist really took off because they they really had a, a sort of a low bar of entry in the sense of, unlike Catholics or Lutherans or Anglicans or even Presbyterians, if you converted, boom, you were instantly within the fold. A lot of these other traditions were more formal and they had a process of catechesis where you would have to, you know, learn these, you know, foundational truths and then profess it publicly. And it was more ceremonial. They also had these other denominations. It was much harder to get ordained. Uh, Presbyterians, for example, never had a lot of black folks in it because they always valued a very highly educated clergy. And in those days, black folks couldn't learn to read. They couldn't go to the same schools. And so they couldn't. Uh, be part of the ordination process. But Baptists, um, it was very, um, you know, sort of informal and non-institutional in the ways that a lot of other denominations were. And so uh, really it was, if you just sensed a call, you could be a preacher. 
And so that's how a lot of folks became uh, Christians, became Baptists in particular. And Fannie Lou Hamer was steeped in that uh, religion. And, and I'm sure many of your guests have, have spoken of this, but Sunday was such a special day because it was one of the only times uh, when Black people could come together and have a sense of dignity. And so people would look forward to Sunday. It was an all-day affair, especially in rural parts where you'd have to perhaps travel a good distance to get to a church. And it was little country church, so it was just all the other sharecroppers around. You know, it was very informal. Nevertheless, she grew up with that in a very devout religious home, and she carried that with her into adulthood. <laughs> How did her faith push her to activism? Well, I think... Um, Fannie Lou Hamer was probably similar to many other African-Americans in that before she was ever an activist, her faith was helping her survive. Um, her faith gave her perseverance. So if you think about that environment as a sharecropper in Mississippi in the 1950s and 60s, there's not a lot to look forward to. Uh, you're poor and it's likely that your children are going to be poor. Uh, you're in a state of racial uh, segregation and a racial caste system that is reinforced by terror. Uh, you're in a rural area, so you have a sense that a lot of the country has passed you by in more urban areas. And if not for faith, someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, who knows how she would have found hope and survival, not that she wouldn't have, but it served as a source of strength for her for a very long time. and the way she got into civil rights activism was as an adult. And so it was August of 1962. She attended a meeting sponsored by the Council of Federated Organizations, or COFO, and she heard a presentation by a pastor. His name was Reverend James Bevel and another person, James Foreman and Bob Moses. And she said she was reflecting on this. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a meeting to talk about voting rights. And she, she went to that meeting in 1962, and later she reflected on that meeting, and she said, quote, they talked about how it was our rights as human beings to register and vote. I never knew we could vote before. Nobody ever told us. Wow. And so she just, she had no idea about her own civil rights. And then, so the next week, she and a couple of others made the historic step to try to register to vote. And again, thinking about that experience, she said, I could just see myself voting people out of office that I know was wrong and didn't do nothing to help the poor. So I think that's pretty critical that from the outset, she connected uh, political rights and voting rights to justice, particularly for the poor. So I think a lot of her activism comes not only out of her faith, but also of her experience in poverty and she was a very loving person, a very caring person. So seeing other people in poverty as well and what they suffered. And so she goes to register that next Friday. And one of the things that people don't often talk about, and it's not an excuse, it's an explanation, but white people were sort of held in check by other white people. And so in Fannie Lou Hamer's case, she went to register and then if that gets out that a sharecropper on your plantation is trying to register to vote, then the white plantation owners could face repercussions. And hmm. a lot of times that's why um, white people sort of went along with the status quo is because they feared 
if they broke ranks, what would happen to them? And that was sort of like Fannie Lou Hamer's uh, plantation owner. As soon as he heard that she went, she, he said, uh, you better get your name off of that role or you're going to be or you're fired, basically. And so she told him to his face, I didn't go there, down there to register for you. I went down there to register for myself. And she had been and her husband had been sharecropping on this land for 18 years. At that moment, they were fired and kicked off the land, had no place to go and no money just because she wanted to register to vote. And she had an opportunity to step back. And how many of us would have taken that opportunity to say, okay, you know what? I tried. I don't want to lose my job. I got to feed a family. Very reasonable things. But what's so extraordinary about civil rights activists is that in the face of those sacrifices, they still choose to take them on and pursue justice, even though it means suffering for themselves. Mm -hmm. And not jettison their faith as well. That's exactly. so crucial um, that she can en endure all of these things, injustices by those who claim the name of, of Christ and still say, I'm not going to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I still right. believe in this God and I'm going to fight against the system and call the white folks to task. That's right. Um, and that's not even the worst of it. So she goes on and starts organizing for uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Co Committee. One of the things, the other things I love about Fannie Lou Hamer is she loved young people and she loved their energy and she loved that it was the young people who chose to go out onto the sharecropping plantations and speak to the poor folks. Because a lot of you know more affluent Black people, even those who were involved in the civil rights struggle, they didn't go out there. Um, they stuck to the cities. And so uh, she, she got involved in trying to get people to register to vote. Uh, she became known for that in the area, which then put her on, on watch, basically. Um, and so one night she's coming back on a bus with a group of black uh, civil rights activists and she gets arrested on some bogus, you know, trumped up charges and taken to a jail in Mississippi and she gets severely beaten mm. and she suffers permanent damage in one of her eyes, one of her kidneys. Um, what happens is they take. Uh, speaking of gendered violence again, they take the women one by one and beat them. And she can hear the screams from the other room. One of the uh, people, one of the young ladies they beat was only a teenager on her first civil rights trip. She had to beg her mother uh, to let her go. And then this happened. She gets uh, arrested and beaten brutally. Then they get Fannie Lou Hamer. And just like in the lynching of Luther and Mary Holbert, I don't know if you caught it, but they made two black people drag them to the fires uh, under threat of death. A similar thing happened with Fannie Lou Hamer. So when it was her turn to get beaten, uh, they forced two black inmates to do it. And they gave them blackjacks, which were heavy instruments covered or wrapped in leather, and they just beat you with it. So they lay her down face, for, face first on the bed, and they beat her. And she talks about her dress coming up a little bit in the midst of it and how she tried to pull it down and the white sheriff pulled it back up and wouldn't let her have the basic dignity of being covered even during this brutal beating. Um, she talks about her body being so hard and being stiff as a board, so stiff that she couldn't bend or move or anything like that. And so that was a seminal event in her life. It sort of um, 
set a trajectory for the rest of her activism. And here's another point where she could have quit, but she kept going. Uh, I'll just relate to you one instance uh, in there. The jailer's wife and daughter after the beating would sneak them cold water while the white police officers weren't there. And Fannie Lou Hamer was very shrewd. She said to them, y'all's nice. You must be Christian people. She said this to the white uh, wife and daughter who were bringing them. And she was trying to convict them, basically. Uh, if you say you're Christian and you're bringing us water and trying to be nice to us, why don't you stop these officers from beating us? And then she told them to look up two verses, uh, Proverbs 26, 26, and then Acts 17, 26. Um, Proverbs says, though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. And so you can see her giving these little subtle hints there. And then she quoted Acts, and it says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So with this passage of Acts, she's saying, hey, we're all the same human race. Why are you treating me like this? So um, even in the midst of all that, she's thinking about this biblically recalling scripture and even using it to convict and indict um the people who are accomplices to this crime mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i think that's so good i can even think as you were talking i thought about how even in our day some people try to do little things to say well i'm helping advocate without doing what is necessary to overthrow the the systems um, they want to do little things to absolve absolve the guilt they feel without doing all they can. And this is kind of an example of that is what you're sharing um, that we see today. People saying, well, I'm an advocate, but not doing what they could can because it would put them in a bad space. Exactly. And, and you want to speak of redemption as well. So what strikes me about this incident, as well as for other people like um, John Lewis or John Perkins, they each had these traumatic experiences of police brutality. And it was police brutality in these instances, which is very important to, to recognize, as you're saying, the structural aspect of it, so that the people who are charged to protect and serve, particularly in the civil rights era, were, were often on the front lines of reinforcing racism uh, with the use of force. Anyway, these black activists, instead of becoming bitter, actually redeemed those experiences. Those experiences became touch points for the rest of their ministries. And so they actually became a testimony uh, for these civil rights activists. In Fannie Lou Hamer's case, one of the things she's most well known for is being a member of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, MFDP. So in Mississippi, you would, the Democratic Party ruled. Now, this is back in the day when the party's platforms were switched. So the Democrats were in the South, were the party of segregation and racism. And so the Democrats always won every race. The only competitive part of any race in Mississippi was the state primary, which, which then you know determined the official Democratic candidate for the state. So the state primary, though, was segregated. I mean, Black people couldn't participate in it. So the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party comes along 
as another Democratic Party in Mississippi, and the point was to compete with the white Democratic caucus for a place at the table. And so it was an interracial group. It was predominantly black, though. Fannie Lou Hamer was one of the most prominent members. The MFDP goes to uh, the Democratic National Convention in 1964 in Atlantic City, and she's one of the delegates that goes there. And she gives her testimony on the floor of the Democratic National Convention. And so she talks about her beating in the Winona Jail in Mississippi. And what is so interesting is that Lyndon B. Johnson, who's president at the time, is so threatened by Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony and so scared that Southern Democrat, Democrats will rebel and not vote for him and block legislation that he's trying to get through, that he actually blocks her televised testimony at the Democratic National Convention. He comes up with this bogus press conference for some random anniversary that nobody's even thinking about solely to interrupt the broadcast of Fannie Lou Hamer's testimony because the way she spoke and her audio clip is out there. So go look up uh, Fannie Lou Hamer Democratic National Convention. And, and, and she's got this deep Southern black accent. Uh, she speaks plainly but forcefully and it was so powerful that they couldn't let it air on tv well when the news when the newscasters found out what lyndon b johnson did they went ahead and aired it anyway in the evening but that's how powerful a presence that she had and she used that experience in the jail this horrendous beating that would have embittered many of us or caused many of us to quit as um a testimony that empowered her activism mm -hmm. That is that is so, so powerful. Um, what other things do you think are important for us to know about uh, Fannie Lou Hamer? Fannie Lou Hamer critiqued the black church, too. So I think we have this idea that the black church in the civil rights movement was always involved, always active. It wasn't. Um, some scholars estimate that only about 10 percent of black churches were actively involved in the civil rights movement. And what that means is, you know, they're out marching and protesting, boycotting and things like that. They may have supported um, the goals, but they didn't necessarily get involved. And I think that's important because uh, in Fannie Lou Hamer's case, she was very frustrated that she as an individual and as a black woman was doing all of this. And the preachers and the church folk weren't weren't leading the charge in many cases, at least around her. And so she critiqued what she called these old chicken eating preachers. <laughs> All they did, all they wanted to, all they wanted to do was go around from house to house and get fed by everybody and praised by everybody, but they weren't actually advocating for relief of the poor or black civil rights. So she she castigated all these uh chicken-eating preachers for not getting involved in the civil rights movement. And one of the ways that she's a great theologian, she had a quote that I love. And in that quote, she said, People need to be serious about their faith in the Lord. It's all too easy to say, sure, I'm a Christian and talk a big game. But if you're not putting that claim to the test where the rubber meets the road, then it's high time to stop talking about be being a Christian. You can pray until you faint, she said. But if you're not going to get up and do something, God's not going to put it in your lap. And so mm -hmm. hers was a faith with feet. <laughs> she was moving. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's awesome, because I think when we talk about black churches um, and the black church's involvement in civil rights movement sometimes we have a romanticized memory yes and we don't realize like you said there was um 
you said 10 percent in the i've even heard one quote that said like three to four yeah, percent of, <laughs> of black church in black church's involvement with the civil rights movement yeah. um in part rufus burrow noted in his um book on uh james cone that that's why many black young men were leaving the church in the yes. 60s because they couldn't they didn't see a faith that was justice oriented that spoke to the conditions that they were suffering with the police brutality poverty um justice issues and they were rejecting that and so when um when cone comes up and talks about liberation it's attractive mm -hmm. uh because it was missing in a lot of black churches um so that's very very um important that you you make that point because i think we think about history wrong um in in that case um also i i, I love the point where you talked about how fanny lou hamer uh was kind of in the trenches and would see the poor sharecroppers because of a lot of civil rights activists were we're kind of middle class mm -hmm. and i even see that today where mm -hmm. people are for people that they don't want to interact with um yes. uh and so it's a real <laughs> real big problem uh we have cnn commentators that are great and say great punchlines but probably wouldn't be in the trenches with the people that looking for uh because sometimes advocacy can be attractive and mm -hmm it could have some it can have uh some perks to it um right. say you're fighting for some some people that you won't even interact with so you know that's one of the uh, it's it's i have this love hate relationship with where i live because i live in the delta and it's rural everywhere is rural i mean a big town is 30,000 people my town is less than 10 and that's a big town it's the biggest town in the county um and so there's all this stuff that goes with not being in an urban area, area, right? Like if I want to go to the movies, I got to drive an hour, you know, um, I got to go to school. Uh, it's, it's more than an hour away to get to the university, all those kinds of things. Um, and it's a very high poverty community as well. And so you get all of those things. But at the same time, I counted a privilege to be in proximity with people in, that I might never come in contact with in in a more either a more urban situation or just even a more middle class situation. Uh, and I do think you're right that a lot of times you'll have commentators and and even folks who uh, set themselves up as activists never really meaningfully interacting with the people they're supposed to be advocating for. And it's real easy to do because all you got to do is you know read the right books or make the right quotes and and you can sound woke <laughs> as can be. Um, but for me, it's been a privilege to particularly to be around the poor and to see what, what I can learn and the riches that they have to share with me. And it's not just all middle-class people. Oh, let's give you money or let's give you our resources. You know, those kind of material resources help, but honestly, there's a lot I learn from being around folks who aren't caught up in all this stuff. You know what I mean? Uh, about relationships, about friendships, about community. And in addition to that, I'm in, I don't like, you know, the president, I'm in red country, you know, politically, and it's hard sometimes, but at the same time, I get to meet folks I never would interact with in, in another setting. So for instance, 
I gave a talk or I preached a sermon recently and it was about racial issues in the church. Uh, and I quoted George Wallace, who during the civil rights movement was a segregationist senator in Alabama or governor rather in Alabama. And he said a very famous and heinous quote. He said, segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever. And it was at this big rally and it was all these white people and they're all cheering him on and they loved it. But today it strikes our ears as, as racist as can be. Well, I quoted that in a sermon to make a, an illustration. And afterwards, a young white man comes up to me and he says, my grandfather was on stage with George Wallace when he made that quote. And he was one of the people in the background clapping and applauding. And it was wow. just, yeah, it was an amazing experience because now this young white man is deliberately uh, going to an intentionally multiracial church, trying to get involved in the city uh, and with the poor. And so it's just so interesting how how I can one can have those encounters uh, and the importance of proximity to really understanding and empathizing with people. Yeah. And it's it's kind of it's so many layers to the proximity because then you have uh, people that grew up white people that grew up wealthy or middle class who'd like to go in impoverished black areas uh, to have proximity to be sometimes a savior figure um, or absolve themselves of guilt um, that sometimes do more harm in proximity. That's right. And then you have on the other hand. Uh, sometimes the black middle class that will not um, interact in that space or they, the criticism for many black, some black churches would be that black churches oftentimes are in the impoverished areas of the church, but it Sunday morning is full of black middle class that drive in and then drive out. Yep. Um, so that's a criticism. And so, you know, there's so many layers to it um it's like so nuanced when you talk yeah. about all those things um well yeah. Fannie Lou Hamer was one who never lost touch with her roots so you know you can imagine especially after the Democratic National Convention she's getting all these requests to come speak um she never ever has a lot of money and what money she does get she sort of reinvests into the cause and um but she never so she always wanted to live in Mississippi she never contemplated leaving despite all of the bad things that had happened to her there, despite the poverty, despite the beating, all that. She always wanted to stay in Mississippi. And then even after her sort of more overt political activism, she starts a farm co-op for poor black sharecroppers. Um, specifically, she starts what's called a pig bank, where you can basically come in and, and get a pig uh, it has babies, you give some back to the pig bank, but then you can keep some. And so it's really kind of innovative um, sort of economic relief that she's trying to bring in rural areas. She always struggled with money and fundraising. And so it folded after a while. Very sadly, Fannie Lou Hamer dies poor, uh, relatively alone and unknown uh, in 1977. And I think it's only been, you know, in the years subsequent to her death that we've recognized what an outstanding uh, civil rights activist she was and what a singular kind of Christian example that she set. One of the quotes I love from her that's very powerful is she said, I feel sorry for anybody that could let hate wrap them up. 
Ain't no mm. such thing as I can hate anybody and hope to see God's face. Mm. It was like, after all you went through, you can like really say that and mean it. It's amazing. So Jamar, for those who um, want to learn more about and do more research on Fannie, Fannie Lou Hamer, this has been amazing, amazing interview. And I'm so thankful for all your research and all you do um, for the body of Christ. How can people learn more? What books and resources would you recommend? Uh, go to thewitnessbcc.com and uh, you can actually even just search uh, the the search engine on the website. And we have several articles about Fannie Lou Hamer, and including some uh, audio of presentations that I've given. Um, a great book is uh, by Charles Marsh, and it's called God's Long Summer. He has an entire chapter in there on the faith of Fannie Lou Hamer. Uh, it's a really innovative book in general, but the first chapter is on Fannie Lou Hamer, and that's that's a really good one. They're about um, there are two or three really solid biographies, and so if you just go to Amazon and Google Fannie Lou Hamer, they'll be the first ones that come up. Um, for a more comprehensive history of uh, the civil rights movement, in, in in particular Mississippi, you could look at Charles Payne, P A Y N E. I've got the Light of Freedom, or you could look at um, Local People by John Dittmer. Both of those focus on Mississippi particularly, but you should know Mississippi history if you want to look at the civil rights movement anyway. Awesome. And how can people get in contact with you on social media? At Jamar Tisby on Twitter, at Jamar Tisby on Instagram. And uh, we are on Facebook, um, The Witness on Facebook, as well as we have a uh, closed group for Pass the Mic, the podcast. You have to request access. Um, but we have some very lively discussions in there. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter at underscore pass, P-A-S-S, -S, the mic, M-I-C. Awesome, Jamar. Well, thank you again uh, for being with us. I'm so excited to see you more active on Instagram. Suggestion. Thank you again. And I, I, I really enjoyed this conversation and I know I listened as well as well. Honored. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Jew 3 Project podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can tune into all our past episodes at www.jew3project.com. You can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. Remember not only to subscribe, but also rate us. That helps us to gauge how we're doing and how you're enjoying the show. And it gives other listeners some ideas about the show as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Also, remember, we have our Bible engagement app in partnership with Back to the Bible to help you get better engaged in the Bible every single day. You take a survey, it assesses your strengths and weaknesses and sends you Bible verses based on those. So it's a great app. You can download the app by searching in your app store or Google Play, searching Jude3 Project, and it'll be right there for you. So thank you again. Remember, if you would like to become a monthly partner or a one-time giver, you can do so on our website or by mail. Just go to Jude3Project.com, hit that donate tab, and you'll see the option to mail in a gift or give online. We appreciate you, and I'm so, so thankful for you. God bless, and remember, here at the Jude3 Project, we're helping you to know what you believe and why you believe it.